we are singing about the love of God, we're talking about the love of God over these weeks, and we thank you for your love. Um, we thank you for this reality that dwells in your heart toward us. And God, we pray together that you'll help us really grapple with it this morning. You'll help us really struggle if we need to struggle to embrace it. Certainly, we pray, our God, that you will enlighten our minds, that you will help us to see and understand way more deeply than we ever have before what it means in our lives that you love us as you do. Um, God, come now, Holy Spirit work, and do your work in us, we pray. Amen. Well, I did begin a series last week uh, that seems to have made quite an impact, at least in the lives of some people. I hope it was the case in yours. And the series is all about uh, the, the idea that God loves you. Let that just sink in. God, the living, all-powerful, almighty God, the creator of heaven and of earth, loves you. Excuse me. Um, one of the basic statements I made last, last week is that sometimes, it's twofold, sometimes I can talk about this sort of thing, and it might be today, and it just flies over top of the head. It doesn't somehow penetrate the heart. And I hope that you will be eager for and allow this teaching of Scripture to penetrate your hearts, because it can change your life when we take hold of it. Um... The other thing I suggested is, for some people, it's really hard to do. A lot of people, you know, resist this teaching. A lot of people struggle with it, struggle to accept it, struggle to receive it. Um, oh, it's fine to state it propositionally, God loves me, God loves all people, God loves the world. But it's another thing to allow that propositional truth to sink into your heart so much that it changes you. That's what God wants to do with this truth. It's a remarkable, stunning um, extreme reality that whoever you are, God loves you. He remarkably loves you, deeply loves you. Um, last week, I, I, I had balls here. One was a little golf ball, and it said, uh, this is kind of the amount of understanding often we have of the love of God. Remember, we were in Ephesians chapter 3. We talked about Paul praying for those Christians as God desires through Scripture for all of us that we would grasp the width, length, height, and depth of the love of God, which is immense for us. And we sometimes conceptualize it like that. It's little. It's small. And of course, I had balls that got bigger and bigger up until that big beach ball, you remember? And I said, it, it, it ought to be at least this size. I mean, we can really develop and grow in our understanding, in our grasping of this fact. And I hope you're in process with that. And I hope maybe even today we can go a little farther with it. Because we need to go from small to large in this. We need to go from tiny to huge in this. And when we get from tiny to huge, it will transition, transform, radically change our lives, your life as well as mine. And I want to tell you there was a, a time in my life that I, I, understand it, I understood this conce conceptually, propositionally, but not in terms of the power that it can have when we take hold of it. I guess I'd love you to take hold of that reality and have it powerfully transform you. So how do you come to know how much God loves you? It's a good question, huh? Like, are you just going to snap your fingers and all of, oh, I, now I get it. 
No, you don't snap your fingers. What we do is go to Scripture. We're going to do that for a few weeks, and I just hope that the scales will fall off some eyes and people will see and be amazed that God loves me. I'm going to start at um, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. How do you come to know God loves you? You go, first of all, to the cross, to the cross of Jesus. It says this in 1 John. This is how God showed his love among us. I think that's a really interesting statement. How did God show it? I mean, if we're going to grasp it, we have to have something to look at, to take hold of, to contemplate, to consider. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, the cross is the living proof of God's love for you. If, if, you, if you ever needed something to look at, it is there. That is the starting point. Here is a fact I would like to present to you to consider. Um, anyone who loves shows it. Anybody who has a love for a person shows it, as opposed to conceals it, keeps it secret, never. I want to use an example from my own life. I have a deal with my wife that I always talk to her before I use her as an illustration, and I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Can I go ahead? Am I good? Yeah, all right. She said, no, service is over, but we got to go home now. Nah, she'll be good with this. When Heather and I were dating before we were married, you know, I was in love. I'm a year or two older than Heather, like seven. And I was ready to get married. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> And I was ready to get married, you know, and Heather was at Western, and, you know, uh, she had these three blasted years to do at Western before we could get married, and it was a long wait. But they were good years, and God taught me so much, and I'm sure her too. But in, in those years, we would often see each other on weekends. The times I rode this, this 401 to London, like you would not believe, right? Just back and forth and back and forth. But particularly as semesters came to an end, Heather was way too busy to see me. And I still joke up about it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Me, I'd say, come on down, honey. A school, big deal, right? But no, Heather was a serious student. And, you know, um, it, it just wasn't possible for her to take the time. She's just too much on. So we would call each other on the phone. I would call her. And we would talk, like, for hours, like a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon, you know, our connecting time. Didn't have it otherwise. And that, by the way, is when you had to pay for long-distance telephone calls. So anyway, this one particular uh, weekend, I had a plan cooked up, and I thought it'd be, oh, kind of romantic and, oh, you know, impressive and all that kind of thing. So we had our chat on a Sunday afternoon, a couple of hours. I made a point of finding out where she was studying, and it was in the psychology building, and I knew exactly where she was able to study uh, in that building. I hung up the phone, said, see you next week, and click, and I got in my car, and I drove to London. You know, and, and I, you know, about an hour and a half drive, and I walked into the psychology building, and I stuck my head around the corner. Oh, a big shock and surprise. Heather was really glad to see me, and I was thankful for that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and we only had about one hour together, and I'm pretty sure we did what we normally do. We went to Wendy's, and we got the burger, right? We, we spent time together at Wendy's, and I dropped her off, and I drove home. You know, that was kind of crazy. Three and a half hours of driving, approximately, for one hour together. Um, but you know something? It said something. It said something to Heather. And you know, it said something to me. <laughs> I'm in love. I kind of knew it. Uh, and if Heather hadn't known it before that, she would have a bit, more, a bit more of a sense of it, the significance of it, the reality of it. When people are in love, when they love, they show it. 
Bottom line, my friends, um, God has shown his love. Can we put that verse back up? God has shown you his love by sending Christ to the cross. I want to say this, and I want you to hear this clearly because I think sometimes we confuse things. The cross isn't love. It's the demonstration of love. The cross is the evidence of the love of God for you. It's the proof that God loves you. The extent that he was willing to go to meet your need and to bless you, the cross is the evidence of the love that dwells in the heart and in the mind of God for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. This 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 is cool. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the cross is a demonstration of the love that dwells in the heart of God. It's powerful. It's a significant thing that we can't miss. We have got to contemplate. We've got to consider. We've got to look at this thing and go, my goodness, what kind of love dwelt in the heart of God that would cause him to do that for me? I have a question for you. How many of you here who have children, think grandchildren also if you like, but how many of you would ask your children to suffer terribly and die a brutal death on the cross for people, especially when those people were rebellious, obstinate, and hostile toward you. How many of you would do that? Ask your child to go into that scenario. I want to suggest anybody who loves their children would not ask them to do that. Couldn't bring themselves to do that because they love their children so much more than they might love the others. God loved us enough It's a powerful love. It's a huge love. It's an immense love to send his son to die on the cross. See, there was something in the heart of God that compelled him to act. Do you understand that? That something, my friends, was love. Think of a parent with an infant when that infant has a very real need. You know, the infant is screaming because he or she needs to eat. The infant is is afraid and needs some comfort. The, The infant is in danger and needs protection. I want to tell you, a loving parent cannot leave that child alone. The loving parent cannot leave that child in desperate need. They don't want to leave that child in desperate need, and they will sacrifice themselves in order to address their need. You know, they get up at night in order to feed. They spend money in their kids and not on themselves. They endanger themselves to keep their child safe. Love is powerful, and it shows itself. I want to tell you this, my friends. That is the love of God. That is the powerful love of God, which dwells in his heart for you. It's just there. It is real, and it is evidenced in the cross. But let me tell you this also. Like a lot of children who are being loved in powerful, incredibly sacrificial ways, and they don't know the power of love that dwells in the heart of the parents, sometimes we don't know the power of love that dwells in the heart of God, even though we are the beneficiaries of it. You get that? You understand that? Lots of kids just soak in the love. They take the sacrifice. They take all the blessings. They don't know how powerfully and deeply and overwhelmingly A parent loves them. They just receive it. My friends, we have got to come to terms with what God has done for us on the cross. And we have got to translate the action as a demonstration, the evidence, the proof of the fact of God's love for us, which dwells in his heart. It's real. I want to take you to Romans 8, 31 and 32. 
says this, what then shall we say in response to this? Everything Paul has just previously written. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that's intriguing. <laughs> he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, and we've talked about that, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You know what that verse is saying to us, my friends? That there is a God in heaven who cares so incredibly deeply for us that not only did he give up Jesus to death and to suffering, to agony that we cannot contemplate, such a heart is in the Lord of love that he is willing to give us all things. There is nothing that he will not give you. There is nothing that he will not do to provide for you. There is nothing that he won't enter into in order to, to, to care for you. His love for you is immense. Remarkable. And in that light, I want you to look at the first, uh, that little phrase that I des- described and, and pointed to earlier. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you know that God is for you? I want to just take a moment and ask you, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is for you? What does it mean that, that he's in, in that place of, of, um, of loving you in that kind of fashion? Let me just say this in the simplest way that I can. God is positively inclined toward you. Um, he's on your side. He thinks you're great. He is for you. Many people don't want to accept that. Many people won't accept it because they can't accept it somehow, believing instead that somehow God is against them. And if that's you, you are the one I would speak to this morning more than anyone else. No one would acknowledge that and say, oh, God's against me. Yeah, no, God's, God's against me. But I think that's the way somehow we just tend to live. It's how we tend to be as Christian people. Here's the question of the day for you, and I want to do, you to do this in all sincerity. It's one of those, what's the first thing that comes to mind when I say this, games? So if it's going to help you to use your imagination, you just, I'd suggest you close your eyes. You don't have to. But if that helps you imagine things, go ahead. Imagine God in heaven thinking of you. All right? And here's the question. What do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? Imagine God thinking of you. What do you assume God feels when you come to his mind? Do you have an answer? Many, many people answer in two ways. Number one is with disappointment. He's disappointed with me. The other one is anger or frustration. Um, Disappointed because somehow you're not measuring up to what I ask of you. Angry or frustrated because of the sin that's in my life. You see, the common response uh, to this question by many people is in the negative. Thinking that somehow God's against me. Not for me, not with me. See, there is a sense that, that people hold, and again, it's core stuff, it's deeper, not necessarily in the mind, but it says, yeah, God's saying, yeah, I love you, but, and that's a huge word, that's a word of incredible significance, yeah, I love you, but you don't meet my expectations. Yeah, I love you, but you don't do what I want you to do. Yeah, I love you, but I'm not happy with you. Bottom line is, there's a belief in the heart of many followers of Jesus when they're asked this sort of question, it uncovers something, and it's a belief that God is a God of judgment. God is a God who condemns sin, and that's where he's focused in my life. I'm going to take you back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. It says this. We looked at this verse last week, but I want to unpack it a little more today. There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
drives out fear because fear has to do with what? Punishment. Punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. My friends, did you hear that? Fear has to do with punishment. Fear has to do with a God who looks at us and points the finger and condemns. Fear has to do with this idea that I'm not good enough and I don't measure up. Fear has to do with things other than love. And the one who, is fear, who fears or even has a little bit of fear is not made perfect in love. The basic idea there, if you have any sense of that God thinking about you and feeling disappointment or anger or frustration towards you, you haven't quite figured out love yet. His love for you. It's, the, the love has not been perfected in you yet. But when perfect love comes, what does the verse say? That perfect love of God, that knowledge of the love which is deep and uh, uh, long and, and uh, high and, and wide, when we get a hold of that reality, it drives out all fear of judgment from our understanding of God thinking of us. I want to say this to you and see what you think about it. See if you struggle with it. If you have any sense of that God is judging you in your life for your sin, you will not know the fullness of his love. You do not know the fullness of his love. You're not there yet. You haven't gone from golf ball to big beach ball. I want to make a, um, a dramatic or astounding claim. And I believe it to be entirely biblical as I'm about to show you. When God thinks of you, there are only feelings of love toward you. Only feelings of love toward you that's it he delights in you you are precious to him you are his beloved child and you bring him great joy there is no disappointment there is no frustration there is no anger all because of the cross of christ and i'm going to unpack that for you now it's common, it's common um, at this point, by the way, for people to kind of, you know, straight army or stiff army like in football, as we described last week, and to say, just wait a minute here, Chris. Whoa, 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 this can't be right. What about sin? What about the significance of sin? You're going light on sin, and the Bible never goes light on sin. <laughs> you know, we need to, to be aware of God's holy displeasure with us and allow that displeasure to have influence in our experience. Well, I want to tell you what the Bible says. I want you to listen to this. God has never gone light on sin. God did not go light on sin. Instead, uh, he dealt with sin on the cross of Christ. There the judgment of God took place, and it is entirely done. And it is gone. It is over for those who are in Jesus. I'm going to prove it to you. John 3, 16 to 18. We're going to read it from the New Living Translation just to get a, a fresh read on this. For God loved the world so much, for God loved the world so much, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And then this, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Uh, like me to read that one again, or did you get it? Like, it's pretty clear, isn't there? Isn't it? There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. But for those who are in Christ, the judgment is gone. It is done. It is over. 
And when you close your eyes and imagine God thinking of you and wondering what he feels about you, never, ever, ever allow yourself to believe that there is judgment, condemnation coming from his heart toward you because the judgment took place on the cross and it's over. And say, okay, Chris, you got me there. Romans 8, verse 1. I love this one. If you've been around IPC long, you know, you, you know I love this verse, right? It says this. Therefore, there is now, let me, let me hear you say it, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but Chris, I sin, I make mistakes. God's going to look at it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A really relevant question, by the way, is for you to ask yourself, am I, am I in Christ Jesus? Because this doesn't apply to you if you're not. <laughs> you know, if, have you come to that place where you've come to a solid belief in Christ, where you have given him your life, where you are trusting him with all that you are, maybe even to the point of entirely submitting your life to him? If you are in Christ, this is the reality. And, you know, I don't know about you. You can believe that or not. I tend to go with what the Bible says. I don't tend to. I do. I believe it. That, that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation from God. There ne- and there never will be again. Because the condemnation, if you would, went on Jesus. Let's carry on in this same chapter, verses 2 to 4. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and it was weakened by the sinful, full, sinful nature, that is, full acceptance of God, law couldn't do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements, measuring up, of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. How much is the requirement of the law being met because of what Jesus did? Fully. And you all didn't say it. I think one person did, and thank you, by the way. How much is the requirement of the law being met in Christ? Fully. I hope this isn't happening. I hope this is happening. That in Christ, the, the, the demands of the law were fully satisfied. Um... And, 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 and requirements met. Romans 5, verse 9. I'm going after this one with you people. By the way, note how important Romans is in these things. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? If you're focused on the last part of the verse, stop and look at the first part of the verse. Since now we have been what? Justified. It's a legal term from that day, as it much, very much is in our own day, that there was a, a judge... And it, justification would, be, it would happen in a court when a judge would rule on a particular accused. And God has ruled in our, in, in, our, in our case. He has looked at us, and because of Jesus, he has pronounced, you are not guilty. You are justified. You are freed from any guilt. It is done. It is over. We have been justified in Christ. There is no condemnation. You know, the reality is the Bible says that we bear the righteousness of Christ if we have received him, if we believe in him. I want to tell you, I could speak for an hour on that. You bear the righteousness of Christ? And I do too? No, this doesn't make any sense. I want to tell you, this is incredibly good news. That's, this is the gospel. Romans 5, 17, I want to quote to you. 
For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. We know the story of Adam and Eve. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his, listen, gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Do you know God has given us, we who believe, the gift of righteousness? It's like he's packaged it up and put a bow on it and said, here you go. Here you go, Joe. I got a gift for you. You know, here you go, Denise, you know. I've got, I've got this gift. And, and we're given this incredible gift called righteousness. And we, we possess it. It is ours. But none of us, shouldn't say that, many of us don't believe it. We don't think we're righteous. In God's eyes, we think we're guilty. Wrong, 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 wrong. We are justified. We are made righteous through the death of Christ and his, his, his ultimate resurrection. It's like a lot of people should be jumping up and down and going like, "Woo! it's an incredible thing that God has accomplished for us. And it is done. We bear the righteousness of Christ. My friends, I want to tell you this. And if you don't believe it, I want you to think about the text of Scripture that I've read. But I want to tell you this. When God thinks of you, love and only love swells in his heart. And a smile comes to his face. He is for you, not against you. He is positive about you. He delights in you. He finds joy in you. My friends, God loves you remarkably. Some might say, well, what about sin? Well, if you sin, confess it and move on. That's essentially the story of the prodigal son. You know that? Which probably should be more rightly or accurately described the story of the prodigal God. <laughs> this God of incredible and overwhelming giving of grace and love and forgiveness. You know, the, the sinful son who has done, you know, laughed and done awful things to his dad and squandered the money and, and you know, lived the way God wouldn't want him to. The son returns. And I want to tell you, even before that son opens his mouth in order to confess his sin, that dad has hit the ground running toward his boy. Think about the heart of God that I'm talking about here, okay? He hasn't heard confession. He just knows his boy's over there and his boy's coming home. And this old man does what old men didn't do in that culture. He, he probably lifted up his ceremonial robes and he ran in a terribly undignified way to that boy. You know what he did when he got to the boy? Wait for an apology? Dour, serious, condemning. No, he ran to that boy and he threw his arms around him in love and he kissed his cheek. And he said, bring the, you know, the, ro the robes, and he, and he reinstated him as, as his son. And people say, well, he confessed his sin. Of course he confessed his son his sin. But the dad didn't wait for the full prepared confession to be spoken. He heard and he knew the heart of the boy, and he just loved him. He just loved him. And then what did he do? The dad, having reinstated him as his son in clear and obvious ways through clothing and rings and so forth, he said, let's have a huge party and let's celebrate with incredible joy because my boy is home. In spite of what this guy had done, the dad was positive, and the dad was just overjoyed with the fact that his son had come home because he just loved this kid. I want to tell you, my friends, that is God in his love for you. That's the reality. That's why this story is told in large measure. That is the heart of God toward you. So if you sin, yeah, confess it and move on. Every time you have a sin to confess, think the prodigal son story. 
every single time, I'm, run, I'm walking back to God, and when I look up, what do I see? I see this old man running toward me with a smile on his face and love in his eyes who's just ready to grab me with love and embrace me and probably lift me off my feet as he kisses my cheek. You see, the sin's been dealt with on the cross. And if we need to confess our sin, we do it, and then we receive the love and we know the joy of the living God in our lives. Here's the biblical truth. God is head over heels in love with you. He is crazy about you. (laughs) If God had to drive an hour and a half to London to spend an hour with you and drive an hour and a half back to Toronto, he would in in a flash of an eye. And if God had to send his own son to suffer for you on the cross, he would do it. And he did. He loves you deeply. He loves you recklessly. He loves you extravagantly. He loves you way more than you can ever know. Although we should be developing that knowledge. He does not see you through the eyes of judgment because of sin. He does not look at you and and see your sin. He knows it's there. It doesn't surprise him. Somebody said to me after the first service, Chris, sometimes I say things and I do things at work and people say, how can you go to church? And I said to this person, I know you sin. It doesn't surprise me. God knows you sin. It doesn't surprise him. But he loves you anyway and so do I. You see it? Yeah, we deal with it, but that shouldn't over the fa- over, overshadow the fact of this heart of God for us. See, our behavior or misbehavior does not touch God's love for you. Instead, he sees you through the eyes of love, so you need never fear going into his presence again. Never. I want you to think about this. How can God rejoice over you with singing, as it suggests he does in Zephaniah chapter 3? How on earth can God rejoice over you with singing if he's mad at you because you've blown it and sinned? Couldn't be. Doesn't, Doesn't make sense. How can God delight in you if all he sees in you is your failure and your and your weakness? How can God celebrate, as did the prodigal father, the prodigal God story, how can he celebrate you with incredible joy and throw parties to honor you and to welcome you home if he's always feeling that somehow you don't measure up? I want to tell you, my friends, that understanding of God is not the God of Scripture. And if you believe God to be, as I have just described, you know, this this kind of God, you need to think again. Bottom line in this, and I don't say this lightly, but some of us need to change our understanding of God. We really do. He is not this dour, sin-oriented, unhappy, critical judge ready to condemn us. Not even a little bit if we are in Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, let me say it again, he is for you. He is positive toward you. He is overwhelmingly joy-filled in love for you. And I ask you to consider seriously 
in believing in this astounding truth of Scripture. See, this is the reality. A fear of God's punishment, judgment, will keep us from an intimacy with God. And this is very possibly at work in a lot of people's lives here. The love isn't perfected while the fear remains. And we must jettison the fear. We must embrace this understanding of the love of God. And when we do, my friends, we won't see God as judge. We won't see God as somebody to be afraid of. We'll see God as one whose arms are open to us and is running toward us as soon as we're ready to walk toward him. You know what I'd love you to do? Today, maybe? Maybe every day this week uh, as you spend time one-on-one with God in the quietness of your own homes. Every time you sit down in that chair, and I hope you have that chair, that place of meeting with God. Close your eyes, and before you pray anything, will you just ask yourself right now, what is God feeling toward me? What is he feeling toward me? Not thinking. What's happening in his heart is right now I, like the prodigal son once did, just walked toward my dad. (laughs) Yeah, sin's there. But what does he feel? I want to tell you, my friends, (laughs) he's just thrilled that you're coming home. He is thrilled that he gets to do this and spend time with you. He is thrilled that you are with him because he loves you. He loves you. We're going to hear a song. Rachel's going to sing a song for us now. That means she sings, we listen. And after the song, I'm going to come up and conclude with prayer. But I want you to um, listen to the song as from the heart of your father your dad, and I want to see what it might mean to you as as she sings.